watchers in the fourth dimension. I knew I was right. Very glad you're pleased with yourself. I suppose I should be grateful for standing here to trust like a chicken ready to have my throat cut. Wherever this machine of yours lands next, I'm getting off. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony, and on behalf of the entire Watchers in the Fourth Dimension crew, I have great pleasure in bringing you another bonus episode, perfectly timed to keep you entertained while you're social distancing during this coronavirus crisis that's going on right now. Earlier this week, I had the great honour of conducting a phone interview with one of the stars of 1960's Doctor Who. My special guest for this episode first gained famed as an actor, starting his career in repertory theatre before making the move to TV. After his time on Doctor Who, he became a presenter and is perhaps best known for stints presenting Blue Peter, Stopwatch, Record Breakers and The Crufts Dog Show. More recently, he's returned to Doctor Who with Big Finish's audio productions, reprising his original character and also giving a voice to the first Doctor. That's right, it's Peter Purvis, who of course played Stephen Taylor from the final episode of The Chase all the way through to the end of The Savages, an era that we have just finished watching through on the main show. So, without further ado, I am so happy to present the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension interview with the legendary Peter Purvis. Hello Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. (laughs) Very nice to talk to you. Absolutely delighted to talk to you. So you and I have chatted online a little bit about the podcast and you you already know that the main subject of the show is of course Doctor Who. However, what I'd really like to do today is talk a little bit about your career in general as well as touch on your time on the show. So... With that in mind, I was wondering if you could talk a little about your journey into acting. What led you into and up to Doctor Who? Well, it was something I always was determined to do from from a very young age, really, from about the age of nine. Um, I I got the bug when I was still at uh, junior school, and we we did a play every year, and I was cast in the lead three times uh, before I was 11. And uh, I thought, oh, this is all right. This is fun. And I, I living in a, a coastal town in, in the UK, in Blackpool, which uh, is really, apart from London, was the show business mecca uh, in Britain, certainly during the summer months. Uh, I saw every kind of show going. I saw circus. I saw musical. I saw drama. I saw variety I, I i saw plays it was it, it was just everything pantomimes at, at christmas and I, I grew up wanting to do that and knowing that it was possible to do that it didn't take me long for it to sink in that that could be what i could do for the rest of my life so that's what i always wanted to do um my first proper work and it was only uh, during school holidays when i was 17 I went down to the local repertory theatre in the town where my parents were, in uh, Barrow-in-Furness, in uh, Lancashire, and uh, I auditioned. I, well, I, I contacted the artistic director and asked if I could audition, and uh, he surprisingly said yes. 
And so I went and did an audition. I don't know how good it was, but I, I learned a couple of pieces. I did um, the prologue from Anthony and Cleopatra, uh, which was interesting. I don't know that I did it particularly well, but at least I got the words right. And I can't remember what the other thing was I did. But anyway, I did two pieces, and uh, he very kindly uh, thought that I was good enough to be given a part in a couple of plays during my summer holidays. And so I did that, and I got paid £5 a week for two separate weeks' work. So that was when I was 17. So I'd started on the professional stage then. And it continued. I mean, after after I left school and uh, college, I went on to... I, when I was at college, I, I ran the Dramatic Society, and uh, I had a, uh, a skiffle group, um, which I sang with. And I just enjoyed performing. There was, there was never anything else I was going to do. So I then tried to get an agent in London and uh, failed with that. But I did get a phone call from the artistic director whom I'd worked for, who said, I understand you've uh, decided that you, you're going to do this professionally. If you would like a job, there's one here for you. Well, I mean, I didn't have an equity card or anything, but I was being offered a job which was gold. So I went up uh, back to the town where my parents were so I could live fairly cheaply for a while as well. And uh, I uh, joined the repertory company. I did two years there. We did a play a week. And over the two years, I think I was in 96 plays. Oh, gosh. And uh, so that was pretty good grounding. So I never went to drama school. Um, I did. That was my training. And I got an equity card when I applied for it. That was fine because I was in a company. I was working. I was doing the job. So that was no problem. And then I went to London. I got a job in the chorus at the London Palladium uh, as a singer. Uh, after which I started getting a few small television parts. Um, an odd line or two in a cop series called Z Cars, which was... Uh, 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 a cop series set in um, in the north of England, um, and eventually I got offered the lead in a, a, a television play, and it was my first leading role. I'd done quite a few odd bits by then, but it was my first leading role, and it was on a Sunday night, and uh, it was on prime time television at prime time, uh, nine o'clock in the evening. And it was a play called The Girl in the Picture, where I played a, a beach photographer in Blackpool, surprisingly, in my hometown. So it was ideal casting, really. And I'd see this pretty girl, and I'd take some photographs of her, and I'd persuade her to go in for a beauty competition. It's a little romantic story. And uh, it was very well received. Um, after that, I got another lead in a series called The Villains, just one part, uh, one episode of it, but it was it was a leading role with a lovely actor called Mike Pratt, who went on to do things like Randall and Hopkirk deceased later. He was a lovely guy, uh, and the ultimate uh, to all this was that I went and uh, I met a director, uh, Richard Martin, um, who was directing a series, uh, 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 one particular serial for. Uh, Doctor Who, and uh, I didn't get the part because he'd seen me in the play the previous night before I went to the to see him. Uh, he'd seen the girl in the picture, 
And uh, he said, oh, Pete, he said, I'm not going to I, I saw you last night. I thought you were terrific. And I'm not going to give you a part in, in this because the, the, the parts aren't worth it. You know, they're just, there's hardly anything to do and anything to say, and you're better than that. But if I'm doing anything worthwhile, I'll cast you uh, in the future. And, of course, I took that as a pinch of salt because that's what happens. You know, you don't, uh, directors fob you off with all sorts of reasons. And I took that as, you know, well, that's the parting shot. But actually, he was as good as his word, and he cast me as uh, Morton Dill in an episode of um, The Chase, which uh, I suppose you know. And uh, following that, everything is history, really, because when we came after the recording of that, I had a very good time doing it. And uh, uh, I enjoyed working with Bill Hartnell. He enjoyed working with me. He recommended me to Verity Lambert, who asked me if I'd like to be in the show permanently. Three weeks later, I joined the cast of uh, Doctor Who permanently, and I was there for a year playing Stephen. So that's, that's actually my full biog, really, as an actor. Yes. So a bit later, I want to talk somewhat about the time after Doctor Who and when you transitioned into presenting. But since this is the perfect lead-in to Doctor Who, I'd like to focus on, on that for just a short while. Yeah, sure. So am I right in thinking you were about 26 when you joined Doctor Who? Uh, it was 1965. I was 26, yeah. So by this time, it was already a fairly well-established show. It was really at the peak of its popularity. I think they'd done 80, they'd done 80 episodes, and they were getting audiences of you know in the sort of around about 10 million, which wasn't bad in the UK. Right, and and Dalek Mania was really in full swing. Yes. Oh, yeah. And in, in fact, I think the chase was the third Dalek story. Did you find it? daunting to join a show that was so popular and really you were the person who took over from William Russell so was that you know I never thought about it I ne I just did it it was you know it's what you do oh I've got a job great and you go in and you do it and I I, I don't I, I was <laughs> although I was fairly green uh, in terms of television and everything else and learning a 25 minute my part in a 25 minute show on television was no not hard we did it like a weekly rep anyway. We did. We went in on a Monday and we recorded on a Friday. That was it. That was each episode. It was all very straightforward, very simple. And I never gave it the second thought that I was doing anything extraordinary. No, I expected, you know, this is what I came into the business to do. I expected to be in a series like that. It might sound a bit arrogant, but, I mean, you know, why would one think anything different? I wasn't awed by it at all. But I must say when I played Morton Dill for that one week, uh, just going in and playing that character for the 10-minute cameo that it was, uh, then I was in awe of Bill and Russ and Jackie and Maureen, as far as I was concerned. You know, they they were seriously big stars, and that I was in their presence. But you soon get used to that. That, that, that sort of being awestruck uh, vanishes fairly quickly. You just get on and do the job. So no, I never thought, oh my God, I've got big shoes to fill. I never thought that. I just felt uh, I'll do this to the best of my ability and just go on with it. And speaking of your ability, one thing that really came across to, to myself and, and my three co-presenters when we were watching through your time on the show was your versatility as an actor. So over the oh, time, you. <laughs> you got to play with various accents. At one point you had to sing. There were some serials that you virtually carried on your own, the, the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve in particular. 
I'm assuming this was something that really translated well from your time in rep to your role on Doctor Who. Was this something that you relished having the opportunity to do, just playing with so many different facets of of your ability? Well, yes. I mean, Stephen was Stephen. The, the only time Stephen was not Stephen was when we did uh, The Gunfighters. And I think at that point I was Peter Purvis enjoying myself, uh, <laughs> which was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, and I did. That was that was a lot of fun. Playing Roy Rogers was uh, was, was a gas. But I uh, I don't think Stephen would have played it quite like. I don't think he would have done quite what, what I did with it because I I just I, I I forgot about Stephen and just had a good time. I have to admit that. Uh, but uh, yes, I mean, the, the the massacre was a joy. I had a terrific part to play in that, and I had a pretty good part to play in the one that they introduced me with because in the Time Meddler. Uh, Stephen and, and uh, Vicky had pretty good parts. I mean, that was fine. Um, it, it, the distressing moment for me was uh, when we did uh, Galaxy 4, which was my second serial, because that, that had been written for Jacqueline Hill. And then I had to play that part. I mean, it was re- rewritten, but hardly. I mean, the, the plot couldn't change, so I had to play the part as written. And that part was written for Jacqueline Hill and not for uh, for Peter Purvis or Stephen. So that was difficult. Um, apart from that, no, I just I just played it as it was. A bit of a swashbuckling hero in the uh, uh, in the Myth Makers. Uh, the massacre was absolutely tremendous. I thought I had a, it was a great part to play in the. Uh, Dalek master plan I think I had a, a pretty good deal because at that time we did a historical story followed by a, a story a historical story you know, I mean it was, it was a really time and although the historical ones weren't as well received and didn't get the same audiences that the, uh, sci- the more sci-fi uh, stories did uh, those were the bits that I enjoyed most I really did like them and the, 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 the sci-fi elements of those historical stories was only the fact that we could be there. That was the science fiction. There was no sci-fi stuff involved in what we did. It was a historical play, and that was terrific. Right, and I must say, we went through the entirety... Well, we've almost reached the end of the William Hartnell era in the way we're going through it, and we've done the missing serials with the narrated audio or some of the reconstructions that have been done. And yeah. we thought the Myth Makers in particular was very much an underrated gem. We thought that was so funny, so enjoyable, and it's really such a shame that that one's missing. Oh, it is, and the performances were great in general. I'm like, no, Max Adrian was brilliant as Prime, absolutely brilliant. It's uh, it, it, it was, I think that well, as I say, I, the histories I just loved them. They they were perfect. Um, It sounds like I think Guy was perfect. I don't mean that. I I think that the serials themselves were just, you know, they they were just excellent to play. What could you not do? What was not to like about performing them? You just got on with it and did it. And it was great. You had good costumes to wear. I mean, Barry Ingham was terrific playing Hector. Um, It was, it was, was he playing Hector? No, he played Paris. Um, it was it was just great stuff. It was it, it was lovely to play. Francis de Wolf, who was a bit larger than life in every way, it's quite funny, you know that, that, that we did those things on a shoestring. And have you, have you seen uh, the the Carry On movie, Carry On Cleo? 
Oh, it's been a few years, but yes, I have seen it. Yeah, well, Max Adrian, uh, not Max, uh, Felix St- Francis Stewart was playing, was uh, wearing the same costume as, uh, was he Agamemnon? Yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> I keep on getting the names mixed up. Uh, but he, he was... Uh, um, uh, he was wearing the same costume that he wore as the ship's captain in Carry On Cleo. It was the identity. It was actually the same costume. It came from Berman's or Nathan's, one of the two big theatrical costumers in the UK. Um, but it was lovely. I, I particularly enjoyed that because Bill Hartnell couldn't say Agamemnon. <laughs> and, <laughs> you, you probably listened to it because you can't have watched it. But uh, when you actually listen to it, you say, oh, now listen to me, uh, King Agamemnon. And he used to mumble this thing too. It was never quite right. He couldn't say it. It was very funny. Wow. Um, so speaking of, of the Mythmakers, there, there are a good number of episodes from your tenure that are sadly missing. Are you hopeful that we might see more episodes returned in the future? And is there anything in particular from your tenure that you would like to see returned? Well, the massacre I'd like in particular. That, that, because I think that was a terrific show for me. I really, really wanted that to be found. It won't be. I, I'm not holding my breath for any of them. That's fair. They, I think they've found everything that they're going to find. Yeah, I, I, I suspect there might be an odd episode here and there in someone's shed or attic, but I, I think I'm with well, you. Well, they, they found one episode of Galaxy 4 about three years ago. Yes, I remember that. That's all. Yeah. Which was quite good. I didn't have much to say in it, which was good. I got my words right because I was—I was—I think I was passed out most of that particular episode. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, good stuff. Um, I didn't like that as a serial, but uh, for the reasons I've already described. So during your time on the show, there there was a lot of change going on, particularly behind the scenes. You know, you worked under three different producers. You co-starred with Maureen O'Brien, Jackie Lane, Adrian Hill. And there's a lot of legend around behind the scenes strife between particularly uh, William Hartnell and, and John Wiles. Do you think that's something that really impacted how the show was being presented on screen? Or do you think that was pretty well kept behind the scenes? It's, well, it was all behind the scenes, really. We weren't involved with any of the preparatory elements of the show, so we never saw new anything until we got a script, and that was it. We got on and did it. There was no time to do anything else. We were doing it on a weekly basis. <clears throat> so it was not uh, not something... We, I didn't have any real dealings with people like John Wiles. I didn't like him. Uh, I, I didn't like his... Uh, I just didn't get on with the guy at all. Um, but obviously he tolerated me for a while. Innes Lloyd, when he came in, I mean, my only involvement with Innes was he came up to me with the, with the scripts for uh, The Savages and said, oh, Peter, at the end of this, he said, we're not renewing your contract. So that was my that, that was how, how much involvement I had with Innes Lloyd. Uh, John Wiles I just didn't like. I worked under him for I never saw him. Uh, and then he was there in the gallery when we were doing the actual recording. So the directors, I remember very well, but the producers, no. Verity Lambert, on the other hand, she was lovely, and she cast me as uh, as Stephen. So she had faith in me. I think we've all admired Verity for a long time. Oh, she was wonderful. She was lovely. I was, I was just disappointed she never used me in anything when she was working for Houston Films. 
but by then I'd, I'd become an established television presenter and maybe she didn't talk, think of me as an actor anymore. So I want to come back to presenting in, in just a minute. You said that you remember and had a lot of interaction with the directors for obvious reasons. Is, is, yeah. there, is there one director who you particularly enjoyed working under or, or a couple? Dougie Canfield, who directed uh, The Time Meddler and The Dalek Master Plan. I liked Dougie very much. He became a good friend and he and his wife knew, knew them quite well during my tenure of the role and for a few years afterwards we, we remained friends. I did Dougie's uh, colour test. Directors at the BBC when they when they were going to start directing in colour because colour was a new medium for, for our television and directors had to learn certain te different techniques and he decided that uh, his uh, test piece, if you like, is going to be uh, a production of a couple of uh, good scenes from Ross the story of uh, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and he cast me as Ross. So, I mean, that was that was brilliant. I, I did that for him. Um, I remember Paddy Russell from doing The Massacre. She was she was just d delightful, absolutely lovely, fabulous director, really good. Um, who else? Uh, Michael Leeston-Smith I enjoyed very much. He directed The, um, uh, the Myth Makers. Bill thought he was a bit of a clown. He used to come to rehearsals in jodhpurs and riding boots because he would go, when he finished rehearsal, he would go to Richmond Park and play polo because that was his hobby, was playing polo. He had two polo ponies and he would uh, play polo after rehearsals. So he came and it was a bit like um, Eric von Stroheim. <laughs> he expected to have a whip as well. But he, but he was a very nice man, very nice indeed. Uh, say, Bill didn't like him very much, didn't get on with him terribly well. Um, Chris Barry, I knew Chris quite well, and I employed him when I had a production company in the 80s and 90s, and I employed him as a director on a couple of uh, corporate videos and things that I did. So you, you maintain these contacts. But I suppose in terms of friendship, I think uh, probably... It would be fair to say that uh, Dougie was, was was the best friend I had there, Dougie Canfield. We were very impressed with the production level of his stories and, and the fact that he took on a 12-episode a serial and, and did the whole thing himself was just the I know, so you, I mean, it wouldn't happen these days. You'd have 12 directors on that. Right. So, of course, we can't really talk about your time on Doctor Who without talking about William Hartnell. Can you talk a little about what it was like to work with him and share a couple of anecdotes well bill was i mean bill was a big star he'd made 70 movies before he did doctor who um when i worked with him first i i didn't know but when i went in to rehearse and play morton dill he was in quite a state because he was very upset that jackie and russ were going to leave the show he considered them his friends, and he felt the original show that he'd been part of the creation of was beginning to collapse and fall apart because they were leaving. They hadn't found a replacement. I didn't know that either. I didn't even know that they were leaving. Uh, I mean, why would I? We were not. Uh, I, I was just a, an actor coming in to play one small part. Um, after the first day's rehearsal, 
I got on really well with Bill and and Jackie Roster and and Maureen. We, we you know we had a good time, and there was an instant rapport there, which was nice. And Bill chatted with me, and was friendly, a little avuncular, um, and I thought, oh, I like this man. He's he's really good. Um, and apparently Maureen O'Brien on the Wednesday of our rehearsal, I mean, we'd only been there Monday, Tuesday, on the Wednesday she said to Bill, Bill, look, I know you're worried about uh, Jackie and Russ leaving, but what about this boy? Um, you like him? Could he take over? And she said that, she told me this, she said it seemed to that a weight came off Bill's shoulders. He sort of went, oh, and she said it was there was a change in him, and he immediately contacted Verity and said, "Look, when you come in for the producer's rehearsal tomorrow, take a look at this boy, and also on the recording." Now I didn't know there were only three weeks to go before Jackie and Russ were leaving. I'd not been informed of it, um, so things were fairly desperate. They hadn't got a takeover, and uh, I maybe was you know, my God, this is clutching at straws. I don't know, but anyway, Bill decided that I could be the guy and he he suggested that to Verity and after the recording on the Friday they invited me over to the pub for a drink uh, after the recording and I went over and uh, they brought me a pint Dennis Spoon who was the story editor and Verity and they, we sat down and they said now I don't know if you know but Jackie and Russ are leaving in three weeks we wondered if you'd like to take over I mean it was as simple as that and I went oh what? Yeah, uh, uh, no, I don't want to do it. I mean, obviously, I, I just leapt at it. Oh, you boy, do will I not? And on the Saturday, I went into Television Centre and had a long chat with Dennis, who uh, talked me through the part that he'd written in the Time Meddler. He'd created Stephen, and uh, that was it. So I, I, I appeared, did the last episode of The Chase, and there I was in the show. Uh, I was there as Stephen the following week. Great. I, I, I loved it. And that was down to Bill. So I owed him a lot. We became very good friends whilst I, I was on the show. He used to, during rehearsals, we, we used to rehearse in uh, uh, Shepherd's Bush, quite near to the television centre. Uh, there was a very nice restaurant just across Shepherd's Bush Green, and we would go for lunch there, Bill and I. He would invite me over at least once a week. And he fed me, you know, and he would say, he would say, oh, would you like a steak? Oh, I'd love a steak. Said, How do you want it? I said, oh, I'll have it well done. He said, no, you don't. Right. He taught me to eat it rare. He taught me to which wines to have. I mean, he taught me a lot of things. I, I grew up fairly quickly, actually, with, with Bill. And he was incredibly generous. And he was generous as an actor as well. He didn't mind if I had good lines in the piece. He wasn't. So he wasn't precious about it. He was precious about the show, and he was precious about the doctor, but he wasn't precious about performance. And he he got little tips he would give to me. You know, he he, he would say, I'd, I'd do a gesture, and he'd say, mm, hey, Peter, mm, you, you don't want to do these big gestures like that, because they can't see it. It's television. It's small. And, and you know how he always used to have these... Uh, hand movements with his near his face and he would demonstrate he said it's television they want to see it so you do your gestures small and you do them close to your head then they'll see them there's no point in doing a gesture that they can't see it's a good lesson actually it's fairly true if you think about it 
either do nothing or if you're going to do something, make sure it's seen. And that's definitely something we noticed when um, we also watched the two Peter Cushing movies. And oh, yeah. the, the way he plays that role, he's using a lot more of the screen because, of course, it was meant for the big screen and he had that space. So contrasting his turn as Doctor Who versus William Hartnell as the Doctor, you can see it in the movements they make and how they're very deliberately tailoring them for the medium that they're being screened on. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've, I've got to say, <clears throat> I never saw the films. I never went to see them. I was I was so annoyed that we weren't in the films and that uh, they brought in a completely new cast, which I, I thought was very unfair and very disrespectful. But uh, that's actually, I, I think in retrospect, I feel it was disrespectful. I can't remember. I think at the time I was just seriously cheesed off <laughs> that we hadn't got the parts. If it's if it's any consolation, we didn't think that they were nearly as good as uh, the equivalent serials on the TV. No, that's every that, that's that's every consolation. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. So I want to come back to presenting. So after you left Doctor Who, you transitioned from acting into presenting, and you're you're very well known for your stints on on particularly Blue Peter and Record Breakers, and and as well as Crufts, and I'll come back to Crufts in particular in a minute, but. How did you come to make that shift from acting to presenting? How did that come about? Purely accidental. Um, I never intended to. I mean, I was trying to act, trying to get acting work. I was, uh, on, for the most part, failing. Uh, having left Doctor Who, uh, I, I couldn't get arrested as an actor. I mean, I did a few odd little bits. I, I did a couple of episodes, four episodes, I think, of Zed Cars. Uh, which where I played a couple of different crooks in two different uh, serials. Uh, I did the odd appearance. I, I think I did something called, I think it was called Court Martial. I did a small part in that. I did Dougie's Colour Test, which I told you about, where I played Ross, uh, which Dougie did. He, he was very impressed with my performance on that, which he told me, and I, I was I was quite flattered by that. But I didn't get work, and it was really difficult. And I, I was driving trucks, I was doing all sorts of jobs, um, and I even worked on the sound crew of um, uh, a big feature film, Frank Sinatra film called uh, The Naked Runner, directed by Sidney Fury, um, which was shot in the UK. And I, I was working. I, I worked on the sound crew, and I was driving the sound crew truck as well. So uh, I was quite involved in the movie business for a little while, but I couldn't get acting work. And then out of the blue, my agent, uh, who uh, they sent me a letter saying, "Look, Pete, we, we've really struggled. We can't do anything more for you. Think you." might have a better chance if you found another agent. Well, I was at a particularly low point at that, and I got no work, and there was nothing happening, and he was my agent virtually saying, that, well, we're sacking you as well. Um, and I, I'm taken... We, we, we did a serial, which I'm sure you're in, you know, we did the Celestial Toy Maker, and I'd taken from the set, with the permission of the designer, the actual Trilogic game that the Doctor's disembodied hand plays throughout the Celestial Toy Maker. And it was a very nice prop, actually, a very nice piece of kit. And I'd got that at home as a sort of talking piece. But it was a bit mystical and everything else. And I 
eventually I started to think this this damn thing it's it, it, this is causing me not to get work it's a jinx it, I'm hanging on to something from something which I've done and it's a, it's a jinx on me and then when I got that letter from my agent I took this thing I picked it up and I took it down into the cellar of the um, of the apartment block where I lived and I threw it in the bins in the in the waste in the trash and uh the following day, the agents phoned me up and said, uh, "Look, we, we're not going to deal with this because you know, we, we, we're going to we're going to stick by what we said in our letter. But if you're interested, there's a program called Blue Peter, and they've asked if you would like to audition for them, if, if you would like to go and see them." And they said, "Do you know the show?" I said, "Yes, I do. Actually, I've seen it. And in fact, I'd seen my good friend, the late John Noakes." on his very first appearance on the show. My wife and I had been sitting at home watching it, and she'd been at drama school with John. And when he appeared on Blue Peter for his first appearance, he said, bloody hell, that's John Noakes. I was at drama school with him. I shared a flat with him and two others. And uh, anyway, I so yes, I knew the show. And uh, I phoned up the office, the number that, was, that I'd been given, and I went and saw them. And then they called me me back to go and see them again so I went and saw them again then they offered me an audition and said they'd be sending me a script and our script arrived and the following day I had to go into the studio and do a 15 minute audition piece which was having learnt the script because there was no autocue uh, and I went in and did the audition uh, came out not knowing whether I'd done it well or not as I came out Michael Aspel went in I thought, oh, well, he's going to get it. He's, he's better known than I am anyway. And uh, He was a newsreader at the time. And uh, anyway, I went home, and uh, then I got a phone call a few days later saying, would I come in for to see the producers again? I went in and had another chat. They said, thank you very much. I went out to get the lift down to the ground floor and go home again, and they came. one of the producers came out, uh, Rosemary Gill, and said, uh, Peter, would you come back in, please? And so I didn't go in the lift. I went back into the office, and they offered me the part of me <laughs> to join the show. And I accepted it. I thought I was accepting it for six months, because it was as far as I was going. It was a stopgap in my acting career, and I would get more acting work after that anyway. And I stayed for ten and a half years. So it was obviously a very good stopgap. And then that, of course, led to other presenting roles. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, well, I mean, we, we did lots of other... Well, we, we couldn't do anything whilst we were on the show. It was an exclusive contract. But uh, there were occasional spin-offs that we did do. There were occasional games, that uh, game series that they had on children's television at that time, which we took part in. Uh, you mentioned Record Breakers. Well, I appeared in, in that, uh, their Christmas specials for, I think, we did eight years of those Christmas specials which were directed by one of our uh, Blue Peter producers. Um, so, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a good time. And then when I came out of that, uh, I, I, by my own choice, I mean, I, I, I'd done ten and a half years. I came back from Brazil, filming in Brazil, went away on holiday and came back to the UK thinking, I think I've had enough of this now. I think maybe I should try and do something else. And so I contacted uh, the uh, head of children's programs, uh, Edward Barnes, who'd been my producer, assistant producer on Blue Peter, and said, look, I, I think I want to leave the show. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Well, 
He said, uh, would you come in and talk to me? So I went in and had a chat with him, and he, he said, well, look, w will you stay on till Easter? This was in September or something. So if, you, if you'll stay on till Easter, that would be brilliant. That gives us time to get sorted. So I did. I left at Easter uh, and went and did. I had series offered to me by Edward. Uh, he offered me a series in Manchester called Stopwatch, which was a children's sports program. Uh, he offered me another series from Manchester, which was called We're Going Places, which was a holiday program for children. Uh, and I did a series, in fact, I did three series of Blue Piece Special Assignments, which were special films that I made all, all around the world. Uh, so, I mean, it was, it was a very, very good time. So I had three things to go to. I immediately picked up uh, Kickstart, which was a motorbike, motorcycle trials program, which I did 13 years of. Uh, I became the BBC's darts presenter. I presented all their darts programs for seven years, something like, oh, I know, four or 500 programs of those that I did. So, I mean, I, I built up quite a repertoire. I've probably done more than 2,000 shows on television now. So it, life has been pretty good. Crofts came along at exactly the same time, and I've been doing that for 41 years uh, until this year. So it, it was a good time. And that was, you know, my career really in a nutshell. I, I had a, a very, very good 60s, 70s, 80s, and the hint in the 90s. That quietened down a bit, but uh, it wasn't a bad run, really. So you mentioned crafts, and, and this was something I wanted to focus on because I, I really grew up in the 90s. So from my childhood, aside from watching old VHS tapes of Doctor Who that my father picked up, I really remember you as the presenter of Cruft. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, well, I... I was the I was the main presenter. I started in 1978 when I left Blue Peter, uh, and I introduced things like agility and flyball to uh, to the television audience. I didn't invent the games. I had nothing to do with that. Uh, there was a chap called Peter Lewis and uh, Peter Meanwell, I think, who who devised uh, agility as a sport. It caught on very quickly. It became the fastest growing sport in the country until it was overtaken by flyball, becoming the fastest growing sport in the country. Uh, and uh, I've watched uh, Crofts change over the years, but from about 1990 onwards, I was the main presenter of the show, first with Angela Rippon for two years, and then with uh, my lovely colleague, who I'm sure you also remember, Jessica Holm. And uh, the two of us presented for, I think, for about 10 and a half, 12 years. Uh, it's when we got involved with things like Animal Planet, uh, doing the uh, uh, doing the show for for them as well as for the BBC. And the BBC coverage got more and more each year, and eventually some of it started being live. And uh, yeah, it was it was a wonderful time. Uh, unfortunately, in in 2008, uh, the Kennel the the Kennel Club and the BBC had a bit of a spat because the uh, the, there was a, a BBC television programme called Pedigree Dogs Exposed. Uh, the Kennel Club took exception to it. Uh, it criticised the Kennel Club for all sorts of things, which it wasn't necessarily responsible for because it's an advisory body. It doesn't control things. It doesn't dictate things. It just uh, it, it, uh, plots the breed standards and various other things and registers dogs being bred in this country, uh, pedigree dogs. Uh, anyway, the the... the gist of the argument was that the, the BBC said, well, we're not going to cover it if certain dogs, which we consider to be endemically unhealthy, um, are included in the show. 
And the Kennel Club quite rightly said, look, this is a dog show. It is not a television event. And told the BBC, no, we're going to have a dog show which has all the breeds we recognise. And the Kennel Club uh, and the BBC walked away. So the Kennel Club then asked me, uh, the the chief executive and two of their officials, asked me if I would help to keep it going on television by uh, doing an online broadcast. So I did. And the production company that was brought in to do that was called Sunset and Vine. And they, in fact, were, well, I, I'll, I'll lead on to that in a minute. They, they were very good. We covered everything in the main arena. And I commentated all day and every day of the show on everything that happened in the arena, including the group judging and the best in show and all the other events that went on. So it was a, a, an 8 o'clock in the 8.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock in the evening job, nonstop. It was a, a big stint. It was hard work. There was no money in it. Uh, but it was a real loss leader on both sides, I think, both for the uh, production company and for me. And it paid off because the following year, Channel 4, uh, through its uh, subsidiary companies, the, 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 the separate channels, More 4 and E4, uh, they picked it up and they covered it a little bit. Uh, and it's grown from there. This last year, there were 13 hours of television. So that was a massive coverage. Nothing like the audiences. I mean, the BBC used to get about 10 million. Uh, Channel 4, who, who now do the brunt of the broadcasting of the show, only get about, I don't know, 4 million, something like that. Uh, so, I mean, so there's a, a great difference in the way people watch television. But they still do online streaming and everything else. But I'm not involved as from this year because the um, uh, Channel 4 dropped me from the commentating team after 41 years this year. That's such a so, shame. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a bit of a blow, and it was done without warning. It was because I'm an old guy. You know, it's a pure ages thing. Uh, so, anyway, that that's water under the bridge. Uh, it meant that I was able to do other things. I did go to Crofts this year as a brand ambassador for a, a, a veterinary joint supplement company. I mean, a very big one. And uh, I was their brand ambassador there. I did meet and greet on the stand. And I did a couple of appearances on the Channel 4 program as a guest. Uh, and I also made several films, short little films, for the the joint supplement company, which is called U-Move, by the way. Um, and uh, I uh, made these films, which go on their Facebook channel. So I was very busy at Crofts this year, in spite of the coronavirus. Uh, but that was the last thing. We were very lucky Crofts went ahead this year at all, because it was, uh, uh, I think, on the Wednesday at about 10 o'clock at night, with the show due to open its doors at 8 o'clock the following morning, uh, that it got to go ahead. Um, wow. Croft was finished, and now virtually Britain's closed down. There's nothing happening anywhere. It's it's all a bit dramatic, as I'm sure it is in the States. It's, uh, it's a very serious disaster, this coronavirus, and it's had a devastating impact on everybody, self-employed people. Um, you know, I, I, the, the impetus I got from not being engaged by Channel 4 to do the show, the publicity I got from that and everything else gave tremendous impetus to my career. And I had the, full, I had the fullest diary I've had for years uh, for big outdoor events throughout the summer. All gone. All gone. It's awful to see what's happening. We're seeing the same thing here. I've got 
friends who own small restaurants and, and so on oh, who terrible. Terrible. completely shut down. Yeah, terrible. And I mean, it, it is, in every sense of the word, a disaster. This is a real disaster. It's a bit like being in a sci-fi movie. It's just totally unreal. Uh, I'm glad I don't live in the city. I wouldn't like to be in London. Yeah, exactly. It's um, We're seeing very much the same thing here. People are being advised to stay home and stay safe. And uh, that's what we're all doing. Yeah, well, if you're sensible, you are. I mean, when, when I was at Crofts, I, 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 I was wearing surgical gloves the whole time. Um, and every time I, if I took them off, I would sanitise my hands and then I put some more on. So, I mean, I, I was, I, I, I tried not to shake hands with people, but occasionally people just come up, you, you're almost forced to. But uh, it was, uh, you know, my job there was to meet and greet. Well, I did, I managed to do that mostly by smiling nicely and, uh, and just keeping a little bit of distance. But it, it was very, very difficult. And I think we were very lucky that the show went ahead at all. I mean, some of the main sponsors took their stands out because they, they didn't want their staff, many of whom were coming from abroad, to be there. Uh, so, I mean, there was a lot more space than usual at Crofts, but still, I think they, the, the paying visitors were only down by about 5 or 6% on, on last year. It didn't make a lot of difference, but almost immediately afterwards, we've gone into a sort of self-isolation state. So if you're listening to this, please follow Peter's example. Wear gloves if you have to go out and sanitise regularly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, just be sensible. So I wanted to go back and talk about something you mentioned a little earlier. You mentioned that you'd done a few corporate videos in, in the 80s and, and the 90s. And yep, I, yep. I understand that you're actually a, a qualified business trainer. How did that come about? And is it something you're still doing today? No, I'm not. Uh, it, it, uh, it, the, I, I, had, I, I was chief executive of a, a video production company. We never, we never made much money, but we, we did some good work. We had some very good clients, but uh, it was getting the work that was the problem. And uh, we were a very small company, so if we were doing a job, we weren't out getting the work. And we weren't very good at managing all that. So we, we ran it for 13 years, uh, but uh, we, we got sold down the river by an investment company, which we thought was helping us. And in fact, in the end, they said they were closing us down shortly after they'd taken us over. And so we had to buy the company back, and we were paying, playing catch-up for the next uh, six, seven years. And we finally got everything paid off, and then we closed the company because it just wasn't worth it. It was too much like hard work. Uh, so we gave it up. Uh, I, when I moved to where I live now in Suffolk, I set myself up as a, as a, um, a, a presentation trainer, uh, and also I worked for a college in London, uh, where I used to do a training course for television presenters. Um, and, I mean, it was just a natural thing. My experience gave me the ability to do the teaching and to do the uh, the presentation training. Um, technology allowed it as well. So, I mean, it was, it was quite an interesting time, but I didn't like it. I was rather bored with it all. And in the end, I gave it up. It, uh, I... I no, I couldn't enter into it with any great enthusiasm. I wanted to be doing it myself if I was going to do it rather than just teaching other people. So I came home and uh, spent more time with my dogs and did uh, the work that came in as it came in, mostly dog involved. I was saying you know, my, my diary was very full for this year, but 
previous years I've done quite a few big open air shows, and uh, that, that's been fun. So, uh, you know, you just keep on plodding on. Right. And um, as we've kind of taken a, a course through your career, one thing that's almost looped you back in the last 15-ish years is uh, our friends over at Big Finish. Oh, well, that's been just wonderful. I think I've done about 35, 36 now. Uh, mostly Companion Chronicles, but several early adventures and one or two uh, odd ones as well, short trips, I think they're called. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's, it's been nice. I've been able to recreate Stephen. My voice hasn't changed much. It's a little bit huskier, a little bit older now, but not, not all that much. Uh, so I, I play Stephen. I play Bill Hartnell, obviously, as well. And uh, I play often the narrator of the piece. It depends on how they're written. Uh, the first couple I did uh, had lines in them, like so-and-so and so-and-so said the doctor. Well, I do a reasonable impersonation of Bill Hartnell, so all those sort of bits in parentheses were dropped fairly quickly. So I would just do the lines as the doctor. And uh, they seem to work, and people seem to like them. So I've been very proud of that, thoroughly enjoyed it. So how, how did that come about? Did they just call you out of the blue one day and ask if you'd be interested, or was that a... Yeah, no, it, yes, I mean, they, they offered me... The first one I did was called Mother Russia, uh, and that's really the only one that has the said the doctor lines in. But that's, they hadn't worked with me before. I remember I was, I was at a Doctor Who convention in Chicago, and there was this group of people doing some talks. I said, who are they? And they said, it's, it's a company called Big Finish. I said, what do they do? Oh, they do original Doctor Who stories using the original people. I said, oh, great. They never talked to me. And it was at least two or three years later before they did. And then they did. And uh, I did my first one. And then I seemed to do a regular one every so often. Um, I did, I think, four last year. Uh, there was something scheduled for the spring, but that will have gone. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens when all this coronavirus is over. See how many of us are still standing, there's the thing. So assuming we're all still standing, one thing a lot of your compatriots from the show have done is reprise their characters on TV decades after they left. Would you ever consider going back on, on TV as it is today and reprising Stephen as a, an older and perhaps wiser version of the character? It's a very much older and a very much wiser version. Um, of course, but I mean, I'd have to be asked. I mean, it's, it's not in my uh, domain to do anything. I'm, I've, I've always made it plain that I think uh, that there's a very good story in there where the Doctor gets back to the same planet that I was on, but it's been done in Big Finish. Uh, Simon Guerrier wrote a wonderful trilogy about Stephen immediately after he left the Doctor. And it's, it's great stuff. It really is. It's, it's, uh, the, the first one's called The War to End All Wars. And uh, oh, you, you obviously haven't heard it. It's a good one. It's a really good one. Um, I, I make no uh, claims to these things as a rule, but it's, it's one I'm very proud of. And uh, Simon Gary wrote a, a really wonderful uh, series of scripts there, which took Stephen right the way on. There's several others I've done. I did a lovely trilogy as well with um, a comedian called Tom Allen, who is absolutely brilliant. He's, he's made a massive career for himself since we worked together. Um, he's suddenly become very big indeed. Uh, but we did a wonderful trilogy together. 
the first one I think was called the first wave. Uh, but anyway, yes, I mean, there are a lot of really nice stories, and they, they've been very generous to me, Big Finish, insofar as they've given, always been great scripts to deal with. And the last one I did, the last big one I did, was with Fraser Hines, which had two doctors in it, had Patrick and Bill Hartnell. And Fraser Hines and I played those, and that was wonderful. That was called Daughter of the Gods. And it tells the story you remember from... Uh, the Dalek master plan, Katarina, well, she's the daughter of the gods. It's a lovely piece. It's a very good piece indeed. Yes, I'm, um, I used to have a very long commute that was perfect for listening to Big Finish. Uh, unfortunately, now my commute's only about 15 minutes, which <laughs> isn't really enough time. So I've fallen way behind on my listening. Most of the stories you've referenced I actually have. I just haven't had the opportunity to listen to them yet. Oh, well, you've got a, that's a treat in store. I'm looking forward to it very much. I, you mentioned that Frasier was in uh, Daughter of the Gods, and between the two of you and, and of course, William Russell, you uh, all three of you do fantastic impersonations of, of the various, uh, of the two Doctors that you all travelled with. So that's always a delight. I'm glad you think so. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's always a pleasure to do it as well. I mean, I, I really do enjoy the Mantonese. It's, it's, they're great fun. I was talking to, to Jason Haig Ellery a little while ago, and he was telling me a lot of people enjoy doing them because it's fun work, but it's also just to do a big finish story. It's just a day or two for each one. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the big stories normally take two days, but probably not all of two days. Uh, so it's a leisurely approach, if you like. Uh, a lot of the work that makes them so good is the post-production. Some of the sound... Uh, design is just wonderful and I, I'm always impressed because I know what we've recorded I know how we've done it and I know what's there and then to see how it all goes together at the end when all the uh, the pieces are put together and uh, the sound design brings it all to life and the stage directions describe the setting and the sound tells you what it is it's very very clever I'm very impressed with it they're, they're a very good company, and uh, I, I think they they deserve to be broadcast. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed that uh, they aren't. They don't actually have a broadcast channel to put these things out. Right, and it's a shame. I, I know they've won all sorts of awards for their work as well. And, so. and deservedly so. He's a very nice guy, Jason, and I mean, he's, he runs a very good company. Yes, he does. So... With that, I think we're more or less out of time, but before we wrap up, do you have any sort of message that you would like to send out to our listeners, Peter? Nothing really, other than uh, to all of them who know me, and uh, I mean, I've met quite a few at various conventions uh, in various places, certainly some in America and some quite a lot over here. Uh, all I'd like to say is thank you for listening, thank you for watching, and thank you for your encouraging support it's always a pleasure to meet you and i always have a very good time when i do meet the various fans um, i'm not a fan of the show myself in that i don't listen to it i don't watch it on a regular basis um, i try to keep up with who's in it and i always watch at least one good episode of um, each new doctor when they appear and new characters when they appear so that i do know who they are but I, I, funnily enough, I'm not really a sci-fi fan. Uh, I don't watch science fiction. I don't listen to it very often. And so Doctor Who is, is a, a, a move away from what I like, 
but I like Doctor Who and I've enjoyed it and it's been a, a privilege to be part of it. Wonderful, thank you. So once again, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, You're welcome. As, as I mentioned to you before we, we hit the record button, um, we'd like to make a donation to charity in your name. Is there a particular charity that you would like us to make that donation to? Yes, there, there is one. It's called Dogs for Good. They used to be called Dogs for the Disabled, but uh, they, they provide assistance dogs for people with everything from multiple sclerosis to autism. And uh, they're a wonderful organization. They need every penny they can get. Marvellous. So we'll be making a donation of around $200 or, or the equivalent in pounds sterling to them. Thank you very much. So, Peter, once again, thank you so much. You have been an absolutely wonderful guest. Thanks very much indeed. Well, wasn't that just wonderful? Peter was a fantastic guest and an absolutely lovely chap. I can confirm that since that interview was recorded, we have donated $200 to Dogs for Good, which equates to £174 sterling based on current exchange rates. So with that, we'll be back for our next main episode soon, in which we'll be discussing the War Machines. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Watchers4D. And as a reminder, you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe, please do leave us a review, and please do leave us a rating on your favourite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with myself, Anthony Williams, and very special guest Peter Purvis. This episode, Bit of a Swashbuckling Hero, was recorded on Monday the 23rd of March 2020. And remember to take all precautions regarding your health right now. Wear gloves, sanitize regularly, and stay indoors wherever possible.